Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. But are you not the an banks. insider? No, I'm not an insider. But I... you were inside the very fetus of government. But I didn't fit that. That was the problem. It didn't. It did. It didn't fit that. We never actually really. You blew it up, or it yeah. tried to blow. Well, but isn't that like Boris as well, though? No, no, no. Because I stayed on. I kept trying. This is a very open, honest and compelling conversation with a man you will probably be very familiar with through the many, many uh, public-facing roles he has had over the years. Senator, minister and high-profile newspaper editor among them. But in this conversation, you will learn a lot more about the man called Shane Ross. Growing up between Ireland and England, being both a political insider and outsider, his tumultuous relationship with his father and his close friend, Eamon Dunphy and a destructive drinking habit that he had to knock on the head. There is so much to come in this one, folks. The government nearly fell in the first three months because of what we were saying we were doing. John Halligan said, I will rain hell on this government. That was the, those are the words he used. We were there to keep Finney Gailey in, in, in order. I was drinking like a fish. I was staying in bed too long in the mornings. That yeah. was a bad thing. And I was getting away with it. I knew the drink was on top of me, but I was enjoying it too much. And then I realised that something was going to give. I just feel that I could have been nicer to him. Hmm. It's as simple as that and less obstinate. I was the one who was going to live longer. At the end of the day, if you're having a row with somebody and they're 40 years old, and you, you're going to be around when they're not. So it's up to you to, yeah. to make it up to them before they die. I put it to you, Mr. Ross, mm. in this court of law, right? Mm. Um, a monkey could do as well as a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. Discuss. Correct. Really? No doubt whatsoever. Well, what are they for, so? It's a very good question. My full chat with Shane Ross coming up right after we look at the crazy week RTE is having, most spectacularly about revelations around Ryan Tuberty's salary. We, of course you knew this was going to happen, had exclusive access to Ryan Tuberty's voicemails. Now, we didn't hack them, but anyway, here they are. <laughs> You've reached Ryan Tuberty. Please leave a message after the tone. Oh, that was unexpected. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. It's Miriam O'Callaghan here. You want to come on Miriam Meets on Sunday? It could be your Leo Varadkar moment. Go on. You know you want to. Call me. Ryan, it's uh, Joe Duffy here. Live line. Uh, the, 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 the live line is pumped. We're primed. We're ready, Ryan. We're oiling down the tape machines. The whole place is waiting. Only the, 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 this Hamlet without the prince. The, the, text, the text machines are throbbing. The people only want to hear the words. Good afternoon to you, Ryan Tuberty. Give us a call. Yeah, uh, Ryan, it's uh, Shane Ross here. Um, I'm going on the, the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Um, and I, 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 I'm prepared to not say anything about anything as long as we can, you know, negotiate for, um, well, let's just say there, there may be a very, 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 very interesting book in this. Call me. Thank you. <laughs> Ryan, Paddy Keelty, give us a call. Urgent. Ta. Uh, Ryan, it, it, it's Bertie Ahern here. Uh, I'm afraid uh, to say I, 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 I won't be able to, 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 to appear on your on your radio program next Tuesday or or any time in the foreseeable future. I'm hearing disturbing and worrying tales of of, of payments flying around and into all different bank accounts and and and, and things being given to fellows. When, when, when I don't think I don't think that level of of, of, of stuff is, is 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 the kind of thing I want to be associated with. Uh, going forward, uh, and I hope you understand. Uh, thanks. <laughs> 
<laughs> as they say, well, if Bertie's, if Bertie's ringing you about that, you know there's trouble. As they say, this is a story that is going to run and run. So let's get straight down to my chat with Shane Ross. I'd been wanting to sit down in studio with Shane for some time. And when we ended up at a dinner party together not so long ago through a relationship we share with my best friend, Nick Webb, I took the opportunity to nab him. Enjoy. So Shane, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast and how nice of you because you've nothing to sell necessarily or nothing to promote. You just decided you'd accept the invitation to come on my podcast. Well, I was asked at a dinner party and uh, <laughs> when things are asked at dinner parties, you always regret afterwards what you said. Okay. But I don't regret this at all. No, I'm, I'm very flattered and very pleased to come on. Thank okay, so, so full disclosure, you mentioned a dinner party there. And of course, yeah. for the listeners out there who listen to the Mario Rosenstock podcast, you would not know, but I do have um, an indirect relationship with Shane Ross. And that is because he, he, I, my best friend, is married to his daughter. That's correct. Yeah, so that's right. And Nick. You, Nick Webb. Nick Webb. Yeah. Put the microphone up to yeah. you. Just hope, put it across there, yeah. Uh, so Nick Webb is my best friend and has been for 30 years mm-hmm. and he's married to Rebecca, who's who's your daughter. He's married to Rebecca, who's my daughter, and you were best man at the at their wedding, yes. uh, which was very enjoyable. You, you made a very, very fine speech. It went on <laughs> far too long <laughs> and my wife had to interrupt it and uh, actually bring you to a close, but it was a... It was a it was a memorable occasion. So we do have a, a strong connection there. Again, for for the listeners, full disclosure, it was the shittest best man speech that ever ever <laughs> was given. I was completely uh, I lost the room uh, completely, and I learned a lesson that day um, about how to how to hold a room and read a room. Yeah. Uh, you, so you, indirectly, thank you for that. And the reason you're on this podcast is because uh, there was a little dinner party in Nick's house, and you were there, and I and I had a few drinks, and I said, "Why don't you come on my podcast?" Yeah, I didn't expect you to follow up on it on, in the circumstances, but I'm delighted you did. Yeah, See, I'm like don't like that. I do follow up. Yeah, on things like, you remember when I, 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 I we'll talk about Dunphy later. Yes. Um, so Shane, so much to talk to you about. I mean, for again, for the listeners to remind the listeners, right? <laughs> Shane Ross, author, journalist, senator, TD, minister, stockbroker. Is there anything I have left out there? Oh God, I, I'm, I, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a lot of other things which are very important to me. I'm a grandfather, which is very important to me as well, which are far more important than all that long, boring list that you read of things that I've done. The only thing you left out is every single one of those careers ended in disaster. Uh, <laughs> they were. I was. I can't. I can't think of a a career or a, or an occupation or part time that I wasn't sacked or, or removed from or made redundant from or resigned from or something, something like that. So that's the only omission. But the, the list is fairly complete, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Um, I suppose in the media, uh, I mean, full disclosure again, hmm. I've done sketches of you on yeah. the radio, um, you know, and I suppose we would take the piss out of your, you know, uh, posh accent. Yes. Uh, by the way, where did you get the posh accent? Well, you're not <clears> from England. No, not from England. Where did I get it? I was at school in England. I was at rugby in, in England. It was a public school in England. My mother was English. She, you, you know, she spoke exactly like the Queen. Okay. Absolutely. Oh, so she was yeah. really posh. She was the real... Well, she wasn't as posh as... No, but the posh know. accent. She had a posh accent. And she she spoke like the Queen. So so I got that from her. My father spoke a bit like me as well because he was educated in England as well. He was in England in his formative years and he came back to, to Ireland after that. So it was a kind of natural thing for me. That's That was the environment in which I was brought up and my parents had it. And then I went to school there as well. Mm. So but, it's not put on. No, it's not put on. But no. you've lived for years and years and years in Churchtown and Dundrum and Carrick Mines and Enniscary. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I, I was brought up in a kind of... In a, in a fairly what, what middle class background with the privilege of very very private education at the time, and I, I suppose the people and, was, are you Protestant, Shane? Yes, yeah. I am. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I was Church of Ireland was christened, and yeah. I went to Church of Ireland schools. So 
that was all kind of natural. It was a natural fit. And, mm. and although when I was in hospital, at, when I was six or seven, I, I developed a really broad, I was in the orthopedic hospital in Clontarf for six months, and I developed a really broad uh, Dublin accent, uh, but I was only six <laughs> or seven. And Did then you? I was I was moved to England, and I I got a Cockney accent then for about six months. And then it all went back to... to Shane Ross with the Dublin accent. It, it was, it is true. And I could swear in swear in Dublin as well, you know, in, in a Dublin accent. Can at you that still age. do your Cockney accent? Uh, can I do it now? Yeah. I wouldn't. Go on, mate. No, not in front of you. Come I on, Shane. I'm not going to do it in front come of you. Come on, my darling. Not, not in front of you, Mario. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> you know, the tin and fruit, apples uh, and pears. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, can, can you do I, the Dublin accent? I, I can kind of do a bad accent, but you're asking me to, to actually outshine you at something you're very good at. No, I'm not going to do it. Remember Shane, uh, David Norris is able to do it. David Norris is a very fine man, he's a very fine mimic, and he's a, he's a tremendous performer. He came, I don't do that. He came on this podcast. Yes. And he went, do you want to, Mario, do you want to hear my inner city Dublin accent? <laughs> and I would go, yes, absolutely, David. Yeah, yeah I marvellous at it. Listen to this. This is straight out of James Joyce. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be able to do that, so that's David yeah. Norris doing it. Yeah, a, a Dublin accent. David has, Norris is a, is a professional at that. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's really so, so good. The reason I took the piss out of you on the radio, yeah. not because you were posh, yeah. but because I did a thing called the two-headed Shane Ross, mm. and this was like a kind of a Hydra uh, t- a sort of thing where it's where you were a politician, but you were also a journalist. Mm. So I did. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what what this government are doing is is absolute disgrace. You know, yeah. what do you think, politician Shane Ross? No, no, no. I, I think the government are doing a fine job, <laughs> and, and and I disagree with anybody who says, uh, but, but journalist Shane Ross, no, no, they're spoofers, the whole lot of them. So, so, so it was this idea that there was two Shane Rosses. Yeah, and this is a kind of a duality you've lived through in your life. The yeah. idea that on one side you're a poacher, on the other side you're a gamekeeper. Yeah, explain this to me and the tension between the two. It's kind of it's kind of fair comment. I mean. I'm a better journalist than I'm a politician. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I'm a better critic. I'm a better opposition. But I suppose it was all pretty accidental that I became a minister, that I moved onto the dark side. I'd, um, for a long time, been obviously a critic. I'd been in opposition. I was in the Senate for kind of 29 years, which as an independent, always in opposition, in effect. And that was my mindset. And then suddenly this, I stood for the toilet, and uh, this opportunity suddenly arose God, if I could form this independent group of people together, we could actually get into government. We could get into cabinet, uh, and which we which we did, and uh, and then I had to actually move over, and it was a, a very very strange because I was sixty six, I think, at the time. It was a very strange experience to be a minister, and I wasn't a natural minister at all. And I Why found not? No, because my mindset was completely and utterly to be opposed to the government <laughs> in Yourself! Yeah, yeah. This is how fascinating. Yeah, so yeah. I moved into a job in which my my instinct is to be completely opposed to everything I did. That's correct. And that's what happened. And when I got into government, into cabinet for the first time, with Finian McGrath as well, who was there, who'd been an independent or a member of the opposition all his political life, and John Halligan. Uh, and people like that who are na- absolutely natural. Was Finian McGrath the anti-smoking campaigner who smoked like a trooper? Well, I don't know if he was anti-smoking. He was no, no. I don't think he was anti-smoking campaigner. <laughs> he would have been perfect smoked, for your side anyway. He smoked like, he smoked like a trooper, all right. Um, Pull over the mic. And then, and then, what happened then was was um, we got into cabinet and we found we were still sitting in there, opposed to Fine Gael, who were the majority party in government. Uh, and my first cabinet meeting, it was, and several of them for a long time were 
It was a matter of who's going to ambush who, whether we were going to ambush Finnegan or Finnegan going to ambush us as independents. And we had this opposition mount, mindset that we were there to watch the government, even though we were inside it. Yeah. So you're right, there was a huge contradiction there for a very long time. Yes. We were very, very critical of everybody sitting around us. We felt like the enemy in the camp, really. You know, you were the enemy within. Yes. And you are, the enemy was within inside itself. Correct. We were the enemy. I mean, the government never, people forget this now, although I read a book about it, but not about the, the incident, but I think the government nearly fell in the first three months because of what we were saying we were doing. John Halligan said in, in the first few months of government, I will rain hell on this government. That was the, those are the words he used, mm. the word in the Sunday Independent. And, and we, we had that thing. We were there to keep Fine Gael in, in, in order. John Halligan, I think, for listeners was, if you may remember him, he looked like, uh, imagine, imagine Albert Einstein came from County Waterford. <laughs> That's not fair. He was a very fine minister. Well, he's not fair. talk like that, you know. And I tell you now, there's aliens. There's aliens now, Shane. <laughs> Didn't he have something to do with space as well, Dale? He still has, and he's still very active in, 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 in that kind of department. Yeah. But he said this. He said, look, we'll rain hell on this government. And mm. we were inside it. He was a minister at the time that yes. he said that. Some priest said so, so there was a contradiction. Yeah, there was. So you were like a punk rock band, really. I think that doesn't apply to me particularly, but it was, we were we were certainly unpredictable, volatile, um, and and but serious. But we were kind of there. We felt okay. to oppose Finnegan from within rather than to work with them. Okay. That worked for a long time, like that. Even though you were a Finneganer as well, I was a Finneganer in about nineteen ninety one, mm. and uh, I joined for a very short period of time. And actually, we parted company very shortly mm. afterwards. Yeah, mm. and when you were in government. You had the good fortune, if you like, or the great experience of becoming a minister in various different portfolios. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I remember there was transport, tourism and sport. Yeah. Um, was there? No, that was all. That was I, all. I mean, I, I, got, I got into trouble for interfering with everybody else's portfolios, mm. but that's a different matter. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange mixture. You, you had a junior minister as well, too to do, you know, the tourism and sport yeah. business as well and to join you in that. But it was a very wide portfolio and they weren't really connected with each other in any particular way. It was an accident that happened. But we, you had a junior, but I... Did you think you were suited to that role? I'm not sure that I was suited for any role at all as a minister, to be honest, uh, when, I look, when I look back at it. And is this because of your contrarian personality, the fact that you were, yeah. in, a sense, in a sense, an opposer of things rather than... Uh, yeah, I think so. I think... I was so into kind of yeah being critical, writing writing commentary which was critical, making mm. comments that were cri critical, rebellion, you know, all that sort of kind of aircom, anti-bank, anti-aircom stuff, all that. What what Charlie Flanagan always dismissed as very derisively as populist stuff. I was a natural kind of populist, mm. and to suddenly be sitting in the cabinet with the insiders, right in the middle of the insiders, and expected to cooperate with them. That was a, an extraordinary situation to be in. Yeah. Mm. Do you, just just when you say that, there's something. This is not going to. This is not. This this comparison is not necessarily going to reflect well on you. But yeah. I think you'll know what I mean when I say mm. it. You described yourself there as a populist. Yeah. Which I which I accept. Yeah. However, you were a populist who went to rugby. Yeah. One of Britain's most posh schools. Yeah, sure. This reminds me of Boris Johnson. <laughs> well, a I, populist also who went to Eton. Yeah. A person who rails against the establishment, who mm. is in of itself member of the establishment. How do you square that? I don't think I was ever a member of the establishment. But you are. Ever? No, no, I'm not. No. No. But you are. No. But surely, to, but surely, right, to come from a well-to-do background who went to rugby. 
yes. and joins government and yeah. in fact joins one of the main newspapers yeah. in Ireland. It, it puts you in the establishment. No, it means that you... It, it, that's nonsense, Mario. Go on. There have been masses of people come from very, very well-off privileged backgrounds who are, who are not establishment mm. people. I mean, look at all the... Uh, what is English. an establishment person? I suppose it's someone who fits into a kind of consensus at the top okay. uh, and is an insider wherever they, wherever they go. I mean, who, who, the ultimate establishment people, I suppose. Yeah. But were you not an insider? I beg. Ictu. But are you not the an banks. insider? No, I'm not an insider. But I, you were inside the very fetus of government. But I didn't fit that. That was the problem. It didn't. It did. I didn't fit there. We never actually really. You blew it up, or it yeah. tried to blow. Well, but isn't that like Boris as well, though? No, no, no. Because I stayed on. I kept trying. So you're inside this this hub of which you didn't feel a part because mm. you wanted to rail against it. Mm. But yet you were consistently drawn to these areas, or mm. at least other people asked you to take part in them. Do you think that narcissism is an integral part of wanting to be a politician? And if so, do you have you ever self-analyzed yourself and thought, do you know what? Yes, there is a narcissistic element to me. I think um, I certainly haven't self-analyzed myself because I would find that quite alarming. I think probably. Um, I think. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think it would make a great copy to uh, to to write in the Sunday Independent on Sunday. Uh, I have just I self-analyzed, uh, and I must. Regard, <laughs> it's very alarming. I don't like what I find. It is extremely alarming. Uh, I want to rail against myself. I am evil to the core <laughs> and a narcissistic grandeur. <laughs> no, I, I I wouldn't find it very cultural territory. I don't think most people would. Is narcissism in, integral in politics? Absolutely. It's there's no doubt about that. The there are very very few people that I could identify. Maybe Joe Higgins is one. I, I, to be fair to him, I identify as completely and utterly motivated by idealisms and beliefs and convictions. Uh, politicians like the sound of their own voices. They like the they like the profile. They they like you doing them. You know, you you yeah. you, you, you took me off, and there were bits where which I didn't hear where people came up to me and said, "This is outrageous. What are you going to do about it? You're going to sue him. You're going to take him to court, etc." Do you see here what he said about it? And I don't mind that, actually, very much, you know, what people say about me, as long as they're talking about me. That's what I like, you know, that they're talking about me and about but also, my ideas. Presumably, you would appreciate that uh, if you were a politician and you're in the public eye, that it's a, it's a satirist or a comedian's duty to do that. It is their duty. But some, it's also, I presume a satirist can, there are areas in which, beyond which, the things you can't say or imply. Yeah, you can't. You could libel people in your position. You could, and yeah. and, and for example, my style is not ever to be personal. Yeah, sure. I think that's probably fair Which enough. I think is off yeah. limits. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. You know, everybody's entitled to a personal life, but I think for everything that they are on the record for, yeah. they are entitled to be satirized for. Mm. That is no mm. problem at all. Yeah, and I think politicians accept that. I don't think you No, but it's right. And for you to say that they want to be on it is correct. Yeah. I mean, I have lots of anecdotal evidence to yeah. suggest it. I mean, I remember once in the Burlington Hotel I was doing a gig and I saw this chubby finger uh, yeah. beckoning me over to the table. Yeah. And I went over to the table and there was the kind of Padre, or not Padre Pablo, but Friar Tuck-like uh, appearance of, of Michael Noonan. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, I bent over to the table and he went, why don't you ever do me at all? <laughs> and I went, what? Yeah, yeah, uh, you're yeah. always doing Bertie, you're great as Roger the Dodger. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing Bertie, but you never do me. Uh, <laughs> is it yeah. because you can't do me or you don't do me? Oh, it's very good, isn't it? Yeah. So then for the next three mm. weeks, I, I, I stood, I did this thing of, so I said, I'd put him on the radio and, and then I did him and, and, and uh, that wasn't very, uh, apparently flattering either, but anyway. Oh, but, no, but, it's, it's, but it's, it's flattering to be done. It is flattering because it's, it's better, to, it's the Oscar Wilde thing, isn't it? It's better to, it's, yeah. it's, it, there's only one thing worse than not being talked about, but then being talked about and that's not being talked exactly. about. And you know, the narcissist thing is there. You can see it in 
in virtually every politician because they you can everything I, they do and is I an see act. what you mean they they like the sound of their own voice yeah but at the same time you would many people would also argue that to be a politician mm. you need to quote a neck like a jockey's bollocks yeah okay now yeah. let's yeah. just say that that's broadly true yeah. what I wanted to maybe ask you was you. You've 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 taken you know you're used to taking stick. Yeah. You don't mind it. No. And in fact, when I would if I would have done you on the radio, I would have gone. The last thing who person would be annoyed about this is Ross. Yeah. Because he gets it. He mm. gets the the function of all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, are you ever hurt by any public commentary written or said about you? Do you feel? Do you, do you are you sensitive at all? I get. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I would think when I was a minister, the public commentary was mostly negative. Mm. Uh, I got terribly used to that, and quite honestly, time after time after time after time, uh, was I sensitive to that? Not really. I think if people who I considered friends were very critical personally, I would have been. I would have been probably upset. I thought that's un- unnecessary. Person critical to your face or critical? Oh, well, on the air in public, right? Uh, I wouldn't mind if they were critical. Could you face. give me an example? Um, I suppose no. I don't think I will at the moment. Okay, but but I, su- I suppose there were one or two examples where I said, "God Almighty, you know, he's a friend of mine. He's saying things personal about me. That's a bit odd. I don't mind what he says politically, but it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't last for any time. No, you do tend to accept the criticism as being. I see. I know what journalists do, and I, I'm quite rough as a journalist, or was certainly mm. for quite a long time. Quite rough on people myself, so I can't possibly. Take umbrage at people being You can't dish it out and then not take it. No, I have to take it. And I took it. I took I took a lot of it uh as a minister. And a lot of it was perfectly fair from where everybody was coming from, you know. And and so I just had to just keep going. I mean the, But it must have been a surprise for you in a way, in the sense that a lot of the quote yeah. populist stuff that you may have written would yeah. have received a lot of um support from people, particularly yeah. particularly your average Joe would have gone, fair play to your Ross, saying it like it is, stick it to the government. Correct. Correct. And then you're the one in the government and suddenly the mirror is turned against you. Yeah. Uh, blazing heat uh turned against you. And that must have been a bit of surprise. It was a bit of a surprise. And uh and there were I mean there were certain there were certain places where I expected to get a lot more support from the media, like on the judges. Like, you know, I had a huge crusade to change the way that they, the judges were elected. And I expected media support from that, particularly from places like the Irish Times, because I thought what I was doing was right there. Um, and I thought it was probably in keeping with their agenda. They didn't. Uh, you know, I, RTE as well, I thought might give more, so, more support and coverage to that. No. And, 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 and I got a lot of criticism for everything I was doing, which I got very, 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 very used to. Uh, but I was surprised that some of the crusades in which I was involved in didn't get more support. I didn't resent it in a in a meaningful way. I just thought that's a bit odd. It's mm. somewhat inconsistent with um, uh, their their kind of pioneering attitudes. Yeah. I'm moving away from politics for a moment because we're getting back to the subject of friendship there yeah. again. And actually, who I was inadvertently going to be talking about yeah. was Eamon Dunphy. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I know Eamon quite well. <coughs> yeah. And I know yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and I know that you've had a, a long, long, long relationship. But yeah. it has been checkered, as indeed a lot of relationships with Eamon yeah. uh, are. I mean, yeah. if you can ask John Giles and Liam Brady. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> again, you sort of go after, for example, Saipan. John Giles, Liam Brady fell out completely with John Giles and yeah. Liam Brady. Yeah, Eamon Dunphy Eamon did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they didn't speak to each other mm-hmm. for quite a long time, and then they got back together and, and everything. Yeah. How about your relationship with Eamon? I mean, for example, when I maybe I'm wrong, but I see you 
uh, I see you and Eamon in my mind's eye oh, at the Horseshoe Bar in the Shelburne yeah. rega- in, in, in uh, 20, 30 years ago in Ireland yeah. you know regaling about you know official Ireland <laughs> and the decent yeah. skinsmanship yeah. that's right Eamon another, yeah. another bottle of Vav Clico for my good populist <laughs> friend Eamon and, and, and you sorting the world out between yeah. the two of you there yeah. um, and that's true and you did crusade together and, mm. and all that sort of stuff but yeah yeah, you sp- yeah. The, at the moment, this relationship is non-existent. Is it? Yeah, you abs- that? absolutely. Yes, I do. Uh, 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 we were very, very, very good, good friends for a very long time. Uh, and we got into lots of scrapes and troubles and difficulties together. A lot of it was revolved around drink, of course. Like you got your, you're on the button when you talk about the Shelburne and at that time. And that must have been at least 35 years ago. Um, and... Uh, and we soldiered together and we fought the battle, you know, the Acom, big yeah. Acom HGM together uh, on The Last Word, all those sorts of things. And there was a great bond. Yeah, it was tremendous. And a, and a similar sense of humour and very kind of iconoclastic and disrespectful to everybody else apart from each other. I love gossip. <laughs> and lots of gossip, yeah. And that was a great relationship. And uh, it broke down then when I became when I became a minister. Why? You know. Well, I'm not quite sure. You've turned the other cheek, baby. You've gone rogue. <laughs> I, 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 he never said that to me. Um, <clears throat> but would that have been the idea that you've joined the this, this? What happened? Well, I'll tell you what actually happened. The facts of the matter is, and I don't know the reasons because I, it would be wrong for me to interpret it because I'm sure I'm as guilty as Eamon is in, in the fact that it broke down. Of course, it takes two. Um, what happened was that there was a strike on, one of the many strikes I had in, uh, the Department of Transport. And there was a, I can't remember if it was a train or a bus strike or what, but there was, there was a series of them going on in my very early days in in government, very early days as a minister. And we were taking the view, which would be the normal view that uh, we weren't going to give in to the industrial action or certainly not going to succumb to it. And we and the strikes kept going. And Eamon went on the radio, uh, Sean Rocha, uh and uh, pretty kind of denounced me as and I'd had dinner with him not very long before and he never mentioned a word about it right but that's Eamon and that's not the point but it was a, in, a, in a way which was quite personal uh, anyway uh, when you say personal it was kind of very anti kind of me and mm. little I, I, I heard it was quite it was quite it, it wasn't just you know there's some political thing I'll see him for dinner tonight word, is, word you're looking for is nasty yeah it wasn't he, he, he it sometimes was can nasty. be like that when yeah. he turns against you yeah, it gets nasty quite quickly. Yeah, and that was that was kind of odd, and I found that very strange. So I didn't, do, as far as I remember, I didn't do anything about it. I just kind of left it, but I didn't contact him about it. Uh, and I had one or two, maybe one contact after that from him, a telephone call, which was not awfully pleasant. What do you uh, mean from what? Well, I'm not going to go into that. Oh, is it, he rang you though. Yes, right. uh, and. And he rang me about it and he left a message, sorry. Okay. And, and it wasn't a very pleasant message. And really, oh. I've had virtually no contact with him oh, okay. since, um, except that he's, you know, he's had a go at me time and time and time and time and time okay. again on various things I'm told. I haven't heard them, I think his podcast or something. Okay. Um, and I have had, I, I, made a, I, made a, I made one effort to get in touch with Did him. Did you? Yeah, he was sick and, 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 I, uh, and I rang his and talked to his wife and I just said, I hope he's okay. Uh, because I was worried that he was really sick, and but he wasn't. It was okay. But there was no response from that. And since then, all I've heard from him is, is anecdotally, there'd been criticisms of mm. what I was doing since, mm. etc. And that was it. And I, 
I kind of I'm kind of sorry because because we got on so well mm. and we were so friendly and we we laughed an awful lot and mm. we used to go we used to go out to dinner regularly with our wives and that's all ended and you know I still yeah. kind of I I remember him with a great deal of affection but I think that ship has probably sailed that's, yeah I know yeah. what you mean um, yeah. and this reminds me of your son-in-law Nick yeah uh, Nick and I fell out for yeah. briefly for about a year yeah and it was a very small thing yeah really small yeah it was a, it was about a game of soccer. Yeah, right. Yes, yeah. And um but we, we, we both got sort of a bit stubborn about it. Yeah. And it began to grow into this thing of, of almost, you know, when something is so stupid but grant is a thing of principle. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you, no fuck you. Yeah. And I didn't talk to him for over a year and he didn't talk to me. How was it how was it remedied? <clears throat> how it was remedied was we either bumped into each other yeah. or somebody said, You two need to get together. Mm. But I remember very, mm. very strongly that after that, both of us consciously said to each other don't do it let's never let that happen yeah yeah that's right and I yeah. think that was pretty wise of both of us yeah we sort of went whatever what we have together is too big it's too lovely and mm. too nice mm. and it's too good to let something small or even big yeah get in the way yeah Um, and let's not have that regret yeah sure and so that's why I'm proud of that the way we kind yeah. of handle it ultimately yeah, that's and, and that means I sort of then developed in my mind it would really matter what Nick did, really. Yeah. I, I mean, beyond, you know, killing people. Yeah. But it wouldn't really matter, really, because I would always see him as my friend. Yeah. In other words, I would be, it would be almost unconditional. Yeah, sure. And I think that's love. That's yeah. being good to person. And yeah. it's, it's not judging on them. And it's so that they can relax around you and go, yeah. they don't ever feel they need to perform around you. Or, yeah. Uh, something like that. But that, so that's unfortunate to hear about, 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 about Eamon, because it sounds like you had a, if you like, a good thing going. Oh, it was great. It was great. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure why it happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe we just kind of were going separate ways anyway. Yeah. And maybe he felt at that time, I don't know, you know, I'd become a minister and I was yeah. no longer the rebel that yeah. I had been before. And it was all subconscious and it was inevitable. But it's it's a pity, I must say. Is, you know, yeah. he, he, he was very good for me because um, he took me down a peg all the time, which was very, very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. it is, yeah. Before we started this podcast, you were talking to me about um, a an, uh, a piece you read in the Sunday Independent about myself in my and my father. Yeah, uh, that went out last um, Sunday in the Sunday Independent. Yeah, and uh, it was about how uh, I haven't spoken to my father in fifteen years, and you brought it up before the podcast, saying, mm. "Oh, I was sorry to hear that," and mm. it, you sort of empathised with me. Did you? Yeah, oh. I did. Yeah, I. Did. I don't know how old your father is, but he's, he'd be seventy-eight. Oh, he's quite young still. He's quite young. Um, I empathise with you because because my father and I got on very well for a very very long period of time, and uh, we fell out in his latter years, and he died at the age of not very long ago, but no, maybe ten years ago now, at the age of ninety-two, and we died on bad. He died, and we were not on good terms when he died, and I've always kind of regretted that, and. Uh, when I read your piece, I thought, oh, goodness me, this is going to happen to Mario. He's going to not speak to his father for, what, how long was it? 10 years? Something it's like 15 now. 15 yeah. years. In fact, the actual last time I spoke to him was, um, you may remember the, the fantastic Wimbledon final between Nadal and Federer in I 2008. Yes. Yeah, so it you remember day, it for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, God, you know, he's going to he's going to be like, possibly like I was, which is quite obstinate as, as well. And he's going to stick out and perpetuate this kind of silence. It wasn't quite silent with my father, but it was it was it was a bad relationship for a, for a, for a long time, and then going to regret it ten years later. Uh, and so I I kind of felt, you know, maybe you should 
make a gesture. Mm. Maybe you should make a move. It's, I know it's very difficult in these situations, mm. but I'd hate to think that uh, 10 years after he died, you thought, oh, I should have done something mm -hmm. because there's no way back on that. I understand. Yeah. What the what? What did your father and you fall up, fall out about? Was it was it a, was it a, a crossing the Rubicon moment? Was it a moment? Or no, it was really kind of gradual. And uh, what do you mean gradual? Well, we got on very well for for a long period of time. When I was, he was a very good father in my childhood. We didn't get on very well as adults. There were all sorts of divisions. He didn't want me. You know, he I did all the wrong things by him. I suspect. What was he? What would he, he have you do? He, well, he was a solicitor. He was he was he was actually managing partner of a bank called Matheson's, which is a, a well known. Matheson Armsby Prentice. Yeah, he yeah. was Matheson Armsby Prentice at the time. He was managing partner there, and I think he would have liked me to be there, and he'd like me to be more conventional. He was very conventional. I mean, middle middle classes. What sisters the solicitors are? They're very conventional. You know, and and I wasn't conventional, particularly on the legal profession, things like that. I'm not saying he opposed me on that, but he was a conventional person. Uh, and I became a stockbroker, which is one thing I think he didn't want me to be, uh, because he felt it it was people made too much money too quickly for doing too little work, uh, which I thought was quite an attractive proposition. Uh, and then, on various other for various other reasons, we we fell out. What if we we just kind of grew apart, and then we had rows about various. Various very, quite personal things, which I won't actually go no, into. Of course not. Uh, and and then, but we never kind of made it up. And then, it, uh, when he was when he was very ill at the end, I was I was the person who basically was responsible for him because all my other relations were around, and that was very very difficult because you know we had contact, but it was it was a contact which was hostile most of the time, and it mm. wasn't a pleasant. Experience. Now, now he was a managing partner of yeah. Matson. Would would this often lend itself to the idea that he was obstinate, stubborn himself? He was successful, and and uh, and he was. You see, we were in some ways we we, we were alike. You know, with big big egos looking for attention. You know, that that's always a problem. Um, and we had we had difficulties over things like uh, his driving when he got older. You know, he was, he was still driving at 1992, and I felt a kind of responsibility to do something about that, which didn't, didn't, uh, you know. Were you minister for transport at the time? No, I wasn't. <laughs> uh, I, but, Sorry, but, officer, officer, uh, la la la, shame me, officer. Yeah, uh, and, and it was kind of slightly. <laughs> it was just kind of slightly. It it was me almost in competition in some t some stages. You know, he was he was still a very active man into yeah. his 80s, and and didn't. And, you know, and I was very active as well. And it was just a very, very difficult relationship. And I would, I should have, I think, probably made more effort to basically to, to, to appreciate his contribution and what he'd done. And he felt, I think, unappreciated by me, probably rightly so. Oh, because well, yeah. you did mention that he was a really good father. Yeah, he was a very good father when I was young. You know, I mean, sorry, I'm not saying he was a bad one anyway, mm. but he was a very, very good father when I was young. And, and the falling out started when I started growing up. So it was, it was very difficult in that way. But without going into detail, and I think maybe the listener would just understand why I don't do that, because there are certain things which you do want to keep private. Um, I, I just feel that at this stage, I feel I could have been nicer to him. Hmm. It's as simple as that, and less obstinate. I was the one who was going to live longer. You know, I was the one who was going to survive. At the end of the day, you know, if you're having a row with somebody and they're forty years old, and you, you know, you're going to be around when they're not. So it's up to you to yeah. to make it up to them before they die. One of the things um, you've talked about there uh, with Eamon was the, yeah. the glory days, if you quite like to call yeah. them, of mm. the, the Shelburne Hotel and everything, mm. and uh, the drinking. All right. Yeah. Now mm. you drank. 
Yeah. Uh, tell me about your drinking because you drank very heavily, didn't you? I did. I yeah. Drank. Yeah. Uh, tell yeah. me about your drinking because I don't want to put words into your mouth. So you tell me about drinking. Your experience with drinking. Well, I don't believe I was ever an alcoholic, although okay. other people would say that. I never had any treatment or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I I was kind of. I started drinking when I was about, I think, eighteen. When I went to Trinity, really, when I went to college, and I, I, I liked it, and I liked the whole atmosphere of it, and I would drink at all hours of the day. And that. there was no kind of discipline attached to my life at that stage. Were you a good drinker? And now, what I mean by that is, were mm. you able to stay up all night drinking? Could yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I did, yeah. did did a lot of that. I Same mean, here. Yeah, and I'd go to the early houses with Dumphy sometimes. Same here. Yeah, and uh, you know we know the early houses. It, that's a terror. That's, ter- that's a terror, though. That energy. It is, yeah. You, I mean, I you, know, you did that. Oh, I know plenty of people who don't have that energy. Yeah. That they they drink yeah. a lot, yeah. but then they just kind of go home to bed. Yes. Whereas yeah. the drink would power me. Correct. And energize me further. Because uh, you gave up no, drink. Completely. Completely. Yeah. But that must have been, mm. you must have done that for a reason. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I was chronically not dependent on it. It's kind of centered around my life at the time. I was about 34, 35, and I was a stockbroker, a journalist, and a politician, sort of all the thing. All three of them welcome drinking into their lives. Politicians at the time were drinking an awful lot more at that stage. You know, Buzzwells. The, the Buzzwells, the Doyle Bar, the Members Bar. They'd spent all day in there, they'd drink at lunchtime, and I was one of those people, you know, hanging around for divisions. Drink, 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 drink. Journalists always drank at that time, you know, long lunches, etc., uh, all the time. And and I was both. I was both those things. And stockbrokers were, you know, the long lunch. I can't remember that verse and that. Oh, that rhyme. Uh, oh, I'll try and remember it for the end of the program the, about the stockbrokers, about lunches. Okay. Uh, lunch. No, I can't remember it. Uh, but about stockbrokers and long lunches, you know, t- from twelve till four. If you want to see the best stockbroker I've ever seen in my life on film, have you seen The Wolf of Wall Street? I have, yes, yes, well, yes. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey is the best stockbroker yes. I've ever seen. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 But, 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 I mean, just a, it was a common sense decision. I was drinking like a fish. I was staying in bed too long in the mornings. So yeah. That was some bad thing. And I was getting away with it because I was kind of boss of my, boss of my in stockbroking. And I, I was getting away with it. And journalism was a bit disorganized. And, I was an independent, so I didn't have to turn up when I didn't want to mm. in the Senate and all that. So it was a loose life and it was out of, out of, out of sync with chaos. I wasn't paying much attention to my family mm. at the time. I mean, and that was obviously something which I regretted uh, afterwards. But uh, at the time, I didn't really kind of notice that, that, that aspect of things. And I just, I tried a couple of times. I knew the drink was on top of me, but I was enjoying it too much. I was enjoying all my life outside my family. And then I realized that Something was going to give, mm. and this is a kind of not not mean something was going to give if I didn't do something about my drinking, and uh, so after a couple of attempts, I I just one day said just gave it up. A couple of attempts. Well, I just it wasn't a big, you know, I'd give them up for give it up for four or five weeks sometimes, and yeah. and then go back on. Did you smoke? Oh, I smoked like chimney. Yeah, absolutely, hundred a day. What brand? Benson Hedges. No, uh, 100 a day absolutely I couldn't go to you know concerts or things like that because you weren't allowed to God. film that it was dreadful but I know the, the, the story I've told before but I had a bet with PJ Mara yeah. who was a great friend of mine former press secretary yeah. to, 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 to Charlie Sorry, Holly to, to Charlie Holly who was a very good friend and I was mixing with Emilio people like that where I didn't kind of notice that 
even that they were all drinking an awful lot, but I was actually drinking more than any of them. You know, I was out every night. They were out four nights a week, maybe. <laughs> but I was out every night. I didn't notice that they were actually spending a bit of time at home. I wasn't spending any. And, uh, and so I had a bet with him one day of one pound, as it was, that I'd last longer than he would. This is 1985, 86, I think. Uh, and I haven't had a drink since. Not even a drop of it since, yeah. you know. Yeah, he went back within 24 hours. Uh, and that was it. And I never did... I never, never touched it since. Yeah. But I, no, I didn't get any help no. of any sort. But I knew that something was yeah, going to give. Old-fashioned Protestant work ethic. So. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, come on, boy. Yeah. Snap yeah. yourself together. None of that Catholic guilt bullshit. <laughs> you don't need the church to put yourself together again, or those damned therapists. Do it yourself, man. <laughs> Calvinist Huguenots. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. And I did that with I did that with cigarettes as well. Yeah. Same thing. One of the biggest successes of my life yeah. is giving up cigarettes. It's brilliant. I gave up cigarettes when I was 35. Yeah. I was smoking at least 25, 30 a day. Mm. Uh, and I was dependent on it. Mm. Ian Dempsey called me, you are the original smoker. Yeah. You look like a smoker. You look great with a cigarette. Yeah. You true. are a smoker. You would, yeah. And worse, the thing was, I associated smoking with creativity. Yeah. Which is the death of me. Because mm. I thought I couldn't do my sketches if I wasn't thinking. Yeah. 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 Anyway, yeah. I gave it up, knocked it on the head, didn't even tell my wife. Did she notice? No. I was three weeks into not smoking. Yeah. And she came up to me and she went, Can I have a word with you? Yeah. And I went, Yeah. You've been in a filthy mood for the last three weeks. Mm. What the fuck is wrong with you? And I went, I gave up smoking. Because <laughs> at that time yeah. I used to go outside for cigarettes. Yeah. Mm. And she was delighted. Yeah. I gave up smoking. And then the first week of the smoking, I said, Can I do a normal week of doing sketches? Yeah. I said, at the end of the week, the sketches were the same as they were any other week. And I went, yeah. fuck it, got it. Yeah, brilliant. Because once I broke the thought in my head yeah. that, that, I, that smoking was to do with creativity, once I broke that, yeah. I knew that my creativity was still there without smoking. Yeah. And that was fine. Then I go, live your life. Just give up these dirty things. Did you put on weight? I did. Mm. I did put on weight. And then mm. I had to deal with that as well because mm. I started drinking much more red wine. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and instead of smoking, yeah. I started drinking a bit more, yeah. almost... Because mm. in a funny way, smoking nearly tempered your drinking. You'd smoke a good bit yeah. and only drink, but then you'd just drink all the time. And yeah. then I had to deal with that and la, 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 la and all that. Yeah, but anyway, very interesting. Yeah. And so, obviously, like, you've been 40 years off the drink. Yeah. And that feels great. 40, uh, nearly 40 anyway. Yeah, and it's that not, feels, that, not that far off it, actually. Uh, and that feels great. It feels fantastic. I mean, the, the energy yeah. is, is phenomenal yeah. by comparison. Yeah. The general subject of money. Talk to me about money. Yeah. Um, all sorts of areas of money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you were a stockbroker. Mm. Um, I put it to you, Mr. Ross, mm. in this court of law, right? Mm. Um, a monkey could do as well as a stockbroker. Mm -hmm. Discuss. Correct. Really? No no doubt whatsoever. Well, what are they for, so? It's a very good question. I learnt, and I've always said this, that the, the science of stockbroking is really a bogus one. Mm. Uh if you, and you're saying a monkey could do as well. You know, there are lots of these tests mm. done. Where monkeys throw stuff at the wall. Monkeys throw stuff at the wall. And they beat stockbrokers. They beat financial analysts. They beat pension fund managers, people who are looking after your funds. Stockbrokers don't necessarily look after your funds. They do transactions. But the people who are managing money are nearly always, not always, but pretty well nearly always, beaten by a monkey throwing a dart at a wall. Stockbrokers' fees are very high. Right, stamp duty is high. If you deal in stocks and shares, uh, and you deal through a stockbroker, certainly in my time, it's changed a bit now. Uh, you're paying massive fees. You're 
the odds are absolutely stacked. Unless you go online to one of those. Uh, yeah, you can. You can Toro or one of those. You can go online now and and and, and, and issue the, the fees. Yeah, and you actually, you actually, yeah. But most people still go to stockbrokers and pay the fees. I mean, that's the way. That that's the way. Do you do operates. stocks? Do I do stocks no. now? No, no. Oh, but I, virtually, sorry. No, I haven't. I don't think I've dealt on the stock exchange for years. I would. You were a stockbroker and you have a quote about yourself there. Yeah. My record as a stockbroker was so bad that Dermot Desmond rightly gave me the P45. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, I was just hopeless. But he wasn't that much better at stockbroking. Nobody really is very good at advising people what to do on the market because the mar- it's all inbuilt in there. I mean, it's it's... It's, it's. Can I put? Can I yeah. just kind of the theory that I have, right? Which yeah. is quite a simplistic theory. Yeah. My 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 essential theory is: How can anybody? It's not a question; it's a rhetorical question. How can anybody do well on the stock market, given the te- theory that the only way you can win on the stock market yeah. is by having insider information? And to have insider information is illegal. Yeah, you can do it by insider information. But that's illegal. Yeah, or you can do it by luck. Yeah, look, but yeah. surely to know something is to be illegal. Well, to know something and act upon it yes. that other people don't know. Exactly. And if you've got so, that information in properly. Otherwise, it's the casino. Yeah, you see, it is a casino. Charlie McCreevy got into terrible trouble, I think, many, many years ago for saying the stock market is a casino. Did he? He was absolutely right. Right. It is a casino. Yeah. Uh, you can get it. You can. And as a stockbroker, you do get inside information by mistake from time to time. Mm. People tell you things. Uh, usually particularly at being Dublin, a lot of other people have it before you. Mm. And you're too late, actually, anyway, even if, you, if you, even if you were to do it. So the price is already shut up. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a kind of bogus art as, mm. far as, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And it always was a bogus art. Mm. It does make a lot of money. You know, where there is money, there's money to be made. And this is dealing with other By people. fees and everything, yeah. Yeah, okay. it does okay, make, another question. That's how you do it. Banks. Yeah. This is a, these, partly these questions are, are little gripes I have. Yeah. Um, and they're serious, so yeah. not, they might sound a bit flippant, but they are serious. Yeah. So banks are a money shop yeah. that charge you for holding their money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They take money off you. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, for example, um, the banks are charging in Ireland the largest mortgage rates in Europe. Yeah. Why? Why are our mortgage rates the largest? Who can. the hell do they think they are? Because they, we're supposed to be in the European Union. Because they can get away with it. But can the European Union not just say, lads, we're all in the European Union, get down your rates? Well, no, they, I don't think they can do that. But the, the customer can, in theory, go to Spain and put their money in a bank in Spain. Could you we can. get a mortgage in Spain? You, can. you, you and I can. Yes, you can yeah. get a mortgage again, or you can put your deposits in Spain. The fact of the matter is you'd get a better rate there, yeah. but you don't do it because it's they rely, on the, in that case, on inertia. You know, people are just not bothering to do it. I mean, there are... Hundreds of millions. Could I get a better mortgage somewhere else in Europe? You certainly could get a better mortgage somewhere else in Europe. And you could get better rates on your deposit money if you had a savings as well. But it's complicated and going off there yeah. and finding it, opening an account, time. getting, you know, you're much easier just dropping down the road and going to somewhere somewhere in Dublin, the Bank of Ireland, AIB or anywhere like that. It's inertia. They get away with that. I mean, look at the, the negative equity thing. The fact that the AIB and BTSB and Bank of Ireland at the moment are announcing... Um, sorry, not negative equity, ne- ne- negative, ne- negative interest, are announcing uh, ra- raises in deposits rates in the last few days with a big kind of hurrah. But the, you, you could do far better outside. They get away with it. People are going to put it. I got a note from AIB this morning saying uh, two, you can get 2% on your, on your, on your, on your, on your deposit now, uh, pro- but only provided you leave it in two years. 
that's yeah. absolutely hopeless, actually. But they'd get away with them to get people to do it. What about the idea that um, statement that bankers make going, um, we'd like uh, to have a look at our salaries, please, again. And the reason we want you to have a look at our salaries, Mr. Donoghue, or whoever the minister is at the time, or Michael McGrath, is in order to attract <laughs> the right level of talent, we need to be paying the minimum of 600000 a year. Now, for me, I regard that as an insult to my intelligence. Are you saying, first of all, the word talent and banking are juxtaposed with each other are, 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 is, 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 what's the word I'm looking for is, is idiotic. It's mm. Idiotic. Mm. Talent and banking. Mm. Uh, and then for gigantic salaries to do what? To hold my money. Mm. Mm. I agree with you. I mean, I, I've written several articles about this uh, since I lost office and during the time I was in office as well, that the idea that these people should be paid sometimes a million a year for doing what the people who the people who brought this country to its knees in two thousand and seven and eight and nine were paid millions every year, given share options, were indulging themselves in the kind of orgy of rewards. And what was the result? The result of that was all of their institutions went bust. It is just un- unthinkable that we should go down that road here again. There is a cap on bankers' pay here now about five hundred thousand. But the idea that they're complaining that that's not enough because there's competition out there mm. where people are giving them more is 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 absolutely incredible. Yeah, these One, guys should, should there there will be no lack of competition. No, for places there if they were paid half that amount. Well, or correct, less. See, because what I'm point my point is that there are plenty of educated, smart people yeah. out there capable of filling jobs like that. Yeah, and some people are not completely and utterly motivated by greed mm. in the jobs that they do, mm. and the bankers are motivated. By greed, you know, right. these guys getting a million a year and saying it's not enough—that's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Can I ask you a few bullet questions? Yeah. Um, did you ever meet Dermot Morgan? Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. Because because it, it, it would have been with Dunphy and PJ Mara and all that. Any yeah. memories of Dermot Morgan? What? Sorry. Any memories of him or anything? Not really. Or you didn't really come in contact. Not really. I, I met him. I met him at a dinner party, etc. Yeah. And he was very entertaining, very nice. Yeah. You know, a bit like yourself, rather pussy cat behind it all. You know. <laughs> uh, Michael O'Leary what's your impression of Michael O'Leary I greatly admire him I know him yeah I think he's uh, a fantastic iconoclast I think he's he, see he's a he's he's a very rich guy who was a very good school who uh, who was a very good university went through all the conventional things that you accused me of doing which I did as well but he is an absolute anti-establishment figure and mm. has been he took on the establishment and he beat them Mm. And he beat Erlingus and he beat the government and he, he beat the ministers at the time. And he's he's kind of, he and he's refreshing. Mm. And he doesn't accept no for an answer. He does things. I think Is he a brilliant businessman? Well, I don't know. But he's a, I don't know whether he's, a, someone is brilliant in Ryanair because someone invented the model. But he is absolutely superb at selling it. That's what he's really, really, really good at. But the result of what he does is apparent for everybody. I mean, surely the book stops with him, though. I mean, when you're buying, I don't know how many, but when you decide, when you decide we're going to buy 150 Boeing 737s. Yeah. That's a that's writing a check. Yeah, I, absolutely. And you've got to decide to write that check or not. He's got to get the credit for it. He, I mean, I don't know whether he's a good businessman because I haven't seen him in operation. At work, but the results in the Ryanair share, share price, the Ryanair flotation, the Ryanair numbers is just devastating. It's the best, probably the best 
business story in Irish in Irish commercial yeah. history. Vincent Brown. Oh, well, <laughs> well you, I, I've known Vincent a very, very, very long time. Um, I don't know whether I'm on good or bad terms at the moment. I, you never do know, but I think probably quite good. I, I haven't seen him for ages. I wouldn't go on his programmes. Why not? Well, I never saw any point, to be honest. Uh, I mean, Vincent was... Because you kind of knew what was going to happen. It was yeah, badger baiting. It was just basically you go on there... You Get go, beaten up. Why would I go out to... Ballymount. Yeah, Ballymount at midnight. To get beaten up. Midnight to, to be beaten up. There was nothing in it for, for me at all. He got very cross about that. And he did the... the old Why trip. wouldn't you come on my programme? <laughs> right. Why wouldn't you come on my programme? Yeah. Stephen Donnelly came on my programme. They all come on my... Leo Varadka, for God's sake, came on my programme. Pascal the lapdog, Donahoe, came on my programme. But you... Oh, no, Ross. You are too high and mighty to come on my programme, aren't you? Lord Ross, in your carriage made of gold. Yeah, that, that was him already. And, well, he'd get his own back because he'd just go for you when you weren't there. And so you had the option. He'd go for you when you were there, <laughs> which was a waste of time. Or he'd go for you when you weren't. And I just preferred to take the Did second Did you ever one. see the time that Jack O'Connor was on his programme and they ended up playing Hit the Road Jack after Jack O'Connor walked <laughs> no, out? Oh, it was very funny. Jack O'Connor, the union official, went, I don't have to take this anymore, Vincent. Oh, Jack, you're going to you're going to take off your microphone now, Jack, are you? Yeah. Oh, Vincent, you are under a dictatorial rule here in, in TV3. Yeah. And they, you, did they, you, they are not socialists. Yeah. Like your good self. And so yeah. I am leaving this programme. Yeah. Go on, go on, Jack. Go on. A stunt. Yeah. A stunt from Jack. Yeah. Jack walks out, right? Yeah. 20 minutes later at the end of the programme, Damon's going, or uh, Vincent's going, anyway, thanks for watching. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. And yeah. in, the in the background, the, the, the closing music, hit the road, Jack. <laughs> and don't you come back no more, no more. And ah, yeah. but Brown couldn't stop laughing because the producers yeah. had done it. Yeah. And it was very, very funny if you look at that on YouTube actually listeners but Vincent has never been replaced I mean he is he was entertainment why do I love him so much because he makes you laugh isn't that he's entertainment he's real life entertainment I suppose that's that's why more than anything else I mean I like him but I don't like being on his programmes yeah uh, Shane we are come to we have come yeah. to the end because mm. uh, we have run out of time thank you so much thank you um, and really enjoyed that conversation and uh, really 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 did enjoy that conversation yeah. and, 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 and learned a lot about you and, um, and thanks for being so frank and, and open oh it was, it was, it was a fascinating you never mentioned Mary Lou MacDonald in the book Jesus well this is what we'll do now right yeah so Shane Ross's book about Mary Lou MacDonald which is called it's, it's called Mary Lou MacDonald. Has been Republican. flying off the shelves Riddle. since last October and yeah. it still continues to flying off the shelves. And there's a lot of uh, public commentary about it at the mm. moment. And there's legal action and all this sort of stuff mm. about a renovation yeah. and uh, all this kind of stuff. But Mary Lou and um, uh, it, we could have done another podcast, Shane. In yeah. fact, I might have you on again on the subject of Sinn Féin and the book at all. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thank That's you so fun. much. Thanks a minute. My thanks to Shane Ross for joining me and being so candid and sharing so much in that great conversation. I could have gone on and on and on and on. I really wanted to talk to him about Sinn Féin and his book about Sinn Féin and he agreed that maybe he would come on again in the future and we will we will have part two of that conversation. It's mariorosenstock at gmail.com if you wish to contact me to give me your opinion, um, give me your plaudits, your praise or your constructive criticisms. They're all welcome. I'm giftgrubmario on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. And I'm finishing my tour. Cork, Cork and Donegal. Letterkenny next week, June 30th, Mount Errigal. The end of my tour, after which I am going to put my ass on a beach. I'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye bye. <laughs>